Good morning. Christ is risen. Sorry I'm back so soon. You're not used to having to put up with me two weeks out of three. Well, it's good to be with you. I want to continue this series that we're, we're carrying on. Paul shared with you last week that I started a couple of weeks ago on community and judgment and talk more about how we live in community with one another under the judgment of God and without judging one another. So I want to turn your attention to this text, this Romans 13 text we just read, and then to the psalm for the day, and then we'll pray and begin. Owe no one anything, the text said, except to love one another, for the, love, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, this is striking because all of us know that Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, love God, your, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law hangs on this. But Paul, at least a couple times, insists that loving your neighbor fulfills the entire law. Because for Paul, the way we love God is in loving our neighbor. So he says, this fulfills the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something that seems impossible. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. How can that be? Where you do not wrong another. I think about my wife and my kids and my friends, my students, you. How, how can I live in a way that does not wrong another? That's a relatively low bar. I mean, the text does not say, love does good for another. Love does no wrong to another. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then the psalm for the day, which is Psalm 149, verse 6. If you want to look there quickly. One of the best images in all of Scripture. This is a new Bible, and I'm struggling to get the pages not to stick together. Psalm 149, verse 6. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Now, this is how I live my life. <laughs> I remember when I, was, when I was pretty young, my dad, who, who had a, shall we say, a disposition for these kinds of things, we were sitting at lunch together, and in walks this man from our church who was a chaplain with a police force. Steve was his name. So Steve comes in with the other policeman for lunch at a pizza place, and he's wearing a gun, the chaplain is. And my dad, again, as he was wont to do, said, Steve, I have a question for you. So do you pray and then shoot people? <laughs> or do you shoot people and then pray for them? How, do we praise and then cut them with our two-edged sword, or do we cut them and then praise? And how, one of the things that I love about the lectionary is that these are the texts that are given for us for the day. Love does no wrong to its neighbor, praise in our mouth and a sword in our hands. So let's pray. Lord, help us to hear your word today, how we are to live with one another 
kind of community we're called to be. God, help us to live faithfully and to do that in joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so you, you can see, you can feel already the angst. How? How do we live in ways that do not wrong one another? Frederick Beekner's greatest novel, Godric, is a, is a novel about friendship. And the, the key character, a monk named Godric, is asked about his friends. And, and the entire story, he says, is a story about the five friends that he has, and a recounting of what those friendships have been like throughout his life, now as he's at the end of his life. And in, in the beginning, as he's accounting his, recounting his life to Reginald the monk, he says, what is friendship but the giving and taking of wounds? What is friendship but the giving and taking of wounds? And any of us who've lived more than a few years know that to live with other people is to wound them and be wounded by them. There is... There seems to be no way to live with one another where we do not wrong one another in some way, even if that's not our intention, even if what's in our heart is affection and devotion. Often, for whatever reason, what comes out of us is anger and harsh judgment and critique. What comes out of us is wounding to another and and to be wounded by another. We all have been both the victims of other people's anger and judgment and critique, and we have done that to others. As we'll, we'll explore in just a moment, we've all been Saul to someone's David, and we've all been David to someone's Saul. And that's true all the time, and often it's true at the same time. This is marriage, right? <laughs> this is parenting, right? There is this way in which to be human is to be thrown into the world with other people who are wounded and wounding you as you wounded wound them. And To read a text that says the love doesn't wrong another is hard for me to take. It it would be one thing if the text said love tries not to do wrong to the neighbor. There's one one of the verses that I love, Ecclesiastes, do not be overly righteous and do not be overly wicked. That I can go with. (laughs) That's my speed, right? Or the text, also in Romans, where Paul says, as far as is possible, live at peace with others. I can do that. As long as I'm getting to determine what's possible, that's that's fine with me. But to say that I'm called to love and love does no wrong to a neighbor. I want to go back to having praise in my mouth and a sword in my hand. That's also in the scripture. And so... To try to get at, as, as I was struggling with these texts, and unsure of what to say about them. Struggling not only with this idea of not being, not wronging the neighbor, but also that the only debt I have is to love my neighbor. To love one another. And as if this weren't heavy enough, he's not simply talking here about believers loving believers. But this is everyone. Owe no one anything but to love one another. And I'm, I'm not quite comfortable with that image, that I owe you love. I like to think that I'm giving it without owing it, right? That it's, it's generous. It's not required of me, but I give it anyway, just because I'm, I'm such a sweet, kind person. And yet the text says, no, you owe this debt 
of love. And you should live in such a way that you do not wrong your neighbor. And so, as I struggled with it and prayed about it, my attention was drawn to the story of David and Saul. And I want to take all of us there, 1 Samuel 24. The background to this story, as you know, is that Saul is raised up as king of Israel against his own will. He doesn't want to be king. Israel asks for a king at the beginning of this, uh, beginning of this story, and God gives it to them. But he says, essentially, you don't know what you're asking for. And in the way the text tells it, it's as if God gives them a bad king just to rub salt in the wound. He gives them Saul. And Saul is trouble from the very beginning. He doesn't want it. He's, we know the first time we meet him, he's lost his father's donkeys, and he, can't, he has to go to a prophet to find them. And the rest of his reign is that kind of bumbling. And then God rejects him, and attention falls on this young shepherd boy, David. And Saul hears from Samuel the prophet that God has rejected him and has favored someone else in the kingdom. Someone, the text says, who is better than you. Can you imagine what that would be like to hear that God has favored someone else who is better than you? And so Saul lives with this deep bitterness. And when he finally meets David, he's pretty suspicious that this is, this is the one. And he seeks to kill him. As you remember, there would be moments where Saul, a madness would come over him, and they would send David in to play. And it would soothe Saul. But sometimes, instead of being soothed, Saul would throw a javelin at him. And David escapes and then went back. Again and again, this happens, right? And it's, it's, it's hard to think that someone would do that, except we all do that all the time. We all go back, even after people have thrown the javelin at us. And not always because we're like Jesus. It's not always Christ-likeness. I mean, in your case, maybe. In my case, it's not always Christ-likeness that brings me back. And yet, so finally David is forced to flee. And then Saul begins to follow him. And when we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is on the hunt for David to bring him down. Chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. And we know that David has about 600. So five to one here. And went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds beside the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, one of the things I love, this is a hilarious story. I don't know that I can re- recount it as, as humorously as I think it's meant to be told. But I love that even our enemies have to relieve themselves. <laughs> right? that, this, that's a good comforting image for me. And so here's Saul hunting David, and yet... Like the rest of us, he's got to take... And by the way, he goes into a cave. I'm so glad I wasn't born in the ancient world. I'm just not cut out for that kind of life. So he comes into the cave, and David and his men were sitting in the cave. Now, it's going to turn out that David thinks this is the blessing of the Lord, but at at the beginning, he couldn't have thought that, that. This is the cave that Saul picks, right? And so here he is hiding in the cave, and Saul is apparently rather absorbed in his reading material, as you'll see. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, 
and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now, we don't know for sure if this had been prophesied over David. There's no indication in the text that it had been. But his men are convinced that God has spoken over David, that there will be a day when your enemy will be given to you, and this is that day. Aren't you grateful for friends who just encourage you in the way of Jesus? They, 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 they rally to you in times of crisis, but sometimes even those who rally to you aren't always speaking the word of God to you. Or they think they are, but they're not. And so here are David's men gathered around him. This is, this is the word of the Lord. This is the moment of your fulfillment. And then David responds. David sneak, stealthily cuts off the corner of Saul's cloak. As I said, Saul must have been absorbed in whatever it was he was reading. After David was stricken to the heart because he had cut off a corner of Saul, afterwards David was stricken to the heart because he had cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now, this is a striking designation because David knows that he's the anointed one, that God has singled him out, that the prophet has called him to be king. And yet he still recognizes that that anointing rests on Saul. And he says, I shouldn't have shamed him in this way. I shouldn't have shamed him in this way. Now, he could have killed him. And, and I'll be honest with you, I would have walked away proud from this moment. I could have killed you. And I just cut away a corner of your robe while you were indisposed in the cave. I could have done so much more. And yet David recognizes that sometimes it's those moments when we just take advantage to shame someone that we are violating their image. We are violating them. That word spoken that we think they will never hear, that no one will ever hear but the closest friend, that word spoken in judgment, in critique, out of bitterness, that cutting away of the corner of the robe, that too is an offense to the anointing of God that rests on everyone else. So David scolded his men severely and did not permit them to attack Saul. Then Saul got up and left the cave. I love that all of that took place and Saul's not even noticed. I mean, there are 600 men in the cave. David's cut off a corner of his cloak and then resisted his, the desire of his men to attack Saul. And Saul gets up, just kind of stumbles out of the cave. And he goes his way. And then David chases him out of the cave and calls after Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. He worshiped him. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of those who say, David seeks to harm you? Because here's the thing. All the people who are trying to hurt you, they have poison in their ears too. You don't know what others are saying to them about you. That's poisoning them against you. Just as you have people around you saying, this is the word of the Lord, take advantage, they have people around them speaking the same death. And sometimes we are those people around them speaking death. David seeks to do you harm. This very day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave, and some urge me to kill you. I mean, David just couldn't resist letting him know. But I spared you. I said, I will not raise my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. 
See the corner of your cloak in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your cloak and did not kill you, you may know for certain that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are hunting me to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. There's this passage in Romans that we just was in the text for last week, that we make room for the vengeance of God. And every time we take it, we edge out the vengeance of the Lord. And so David says, I'm leaving room. I won't raise my hand against you. I won't speak against you. If the Lord wants to avenge me, he can do it. As the ancient proverb says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Against whom is this king of Israel come out? Whom did you pursue? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. May he see to it and plead my cause and vindicate me against you. Another thing that I, I, I love about this passage is that David is not being too pious. He's making sure that Saul knows that he's wrong, David. And there's, there's a certain way in our churches, and this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm nervous to talk about this, is that we, we sometimes encourage people to respond to those who wrong them in ways that I think that are, at, that are actually unfaithful, as if taking the abuse is what Christ requires of you. And there's a, there is a fine line between responding with Christ-like love and forgiveness and taking abuse. Now, sometimes the line's not that fine. We're just confused. But sometimes there is this a razor's edge between someone taking advantage of you and you taking it for, in ways you shouldn't and someone trying to take advantage of you and you, empowered by the Spirit, allowing it to take place because you trust God. Those are radically different realities, but sometimes they're incredibly difficult to discern. And in this moment, David, I think, is recognizing that he can call Saul out for what Saul is doing. You are seeking my life, but I will not respond in kind. And then notice the response. Notice how Saul responds. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. If we're really interested in the judgment of God, the only way to make room for it is to be like Christ. And notice how the judgment of God is pricking Saul here. That what brings Saul to this awareness that he's in the wrong is precisely David's willingness not to avenge himself. And Saul weeps and says to David, you are more righteous than I am, for you have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. Today you have explained how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Sometimes God sets you up to see what you will and won't do. It's awfully quiet right in this moment. Sometimes God sets you up to see what you will and won't do. He gives Saul into David's hands. And Saul realizes it and David realizes it. So may the Lord... Who has ever found an enemy and sent the enemy safely away? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now I know that you shall surely be king. And here he just outs the conversation. This is what our conflict is really about. 
I'm king and I want to be king. And God has given you the kingdom. And I don't want you to have the kingdom. Because underneath all of our conflicts, there are deep, deep wounds and fears. And now he's voiced it. You are going to be king. And the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not wipe out my name from my father's house. So David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, I wish that were the end of the story. I wish this were everything it appears to be, which is a moment of repentance and reconciliation. Not that they lived together. I mean, I think it's, it's striking that the text tells us Saul went one way and David went another. Because in this life, short of the end when God makes all things right, there are some people, reconciliation looks like this kind of meeting and then parting again. Part of being discerning and following what God makes possible, living at peace with people as far as possible, sometimes look like agreeing to keep your distance from each other. And I, I wish that's where it ended, but it doesn't end there. In chapter 26, we pick the story up again, and Saul has heard that David is in the wilderness, and Saul once again gathers up his troops and seeks David's life. And we can pick it up in verse, let's see, where do I want to start? Let's start in verse 17. What's happened in this text is... Saul is asleep. David hears that Saul is seeking his life, and then one night he falls asleep. And the text says that the Lord causes a deep sleep to come over Saul and his army. And David comes into the camp where Saul is sleeping and takes his spear in his canteen and then sneaks away and calls out. Verse 13 says, David went to the other side and stood on a hill far away with a great distance between them. But the text keeps insisting. He keeps the distance. And then David calls to the army and to Abner, son of Net, saying, Abner, will you not answer? And he wakes them up. And Abner says, who are you that calls to the king? And David said, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your king? So he calls Abner out for this failure. And while he's calling him out, verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he added, why does my Lord pursue his servant? For what have I done? What guilt is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is mortals, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out today from my share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." Then Saul says, I have done wrong. Come back, my son David, for I will never harm you again. Because my life was precious in your sight today. I have been a fool and have made a great mistake. Now, David has a choice to make just at this moment. Just days before, weeks before, he's been through this with Saul. He's heard Saul say, my son David. 
you're the rightful king. You're the better man. He's heard Saul say, I won't seek your life anymore. You will be king. And now here they are again. Saul is seeking his life. David has taken the spear. He's kept his distance. And he says, why are you seeking me? Why are you hunting me? And Saul again, in tears, says he's wrong. Come back, my son, David. I will never harm you again. And David replied, here is the spear. O king, let one of the young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, but I would not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. As your life was precious today in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he rescue me from all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. What a moment in which David returns spear to Saul. You remember how this story begins. It's that spear that Saul has thrown at David over and over and over again. It's that spear that has again and again threatened David's life. And yet here in this moment, wisely and humbly, David says, here's your spear. This instrument that you've used against me again and again, here it is. And that is the double-edged sword that's in our hand. When the praise of this God is in our mouth, the sword we're holding is not our sword, but the sword of everyone who seeks to do us harm. Every enemy we have, whether that enemy is called friend or not, everyone who's wounded us, whether that person is wife or husband or child or parent, whoever it is that has brought that sword against us, if we're going to praise this God, We stand with the praise in our mouth and their sword in our hands making this decision to say, I give it to you again. Seventy times seven, I give it to you again. Now David doesn't do this foolishly. He keeps his distance and he says, send one of your servants to get it. And he doesn't come back. I mean, Saul says, come back, my son David. And David doesn't come back. He doesn't enter foolishly into a place where that killing is easy for Saul. But he does say to Saul, this is your spear, and I'm going to keep giving it back to you until you see that I will not protect myself, but I will make room for the vengeance of God. And this is the only way to live in community. Because trust me, there are spears all around you. In this room, in the house you live in, wherever you work, social media, There are spears all around you. And to be a follower of Christ is to say, here it is again. Because I owe you an infinite debt. Not because of what you've done for me, but because because of what Christ has done for us. What binds us together is not our history. It's not how well or how poorly you've treated me or how well or how poorly I've treated you. What binds us together is that God, while we were yet sinners, sends his son to die for us. While we are enemies of God, God reconciles us to him in the death of his son. And therefore, we are infinitely obligated to stay together. Now, we might keep our distance. 
I might give the, the spear to your servant and not to you, but I am going to continually come back just close enough that we can say to one another, let's leave room for God to make this judgment. So here's the way in which we do no wrong. We are going to wound one another. There's no escaping that. But there is a way to wound one another as we open ourselves up to be wounded. And that kind of vulnerability, that kind of openness, to keep coming back, even with those who've hurt us, because we believe in the goodness of God and we trust in the faithfulness of God, because we keep coming back, what we're trusting is that those wounds eventually become the wounds of Christ. And that there's no way you can wound me that doesn't mark me as a follower of Jesus if I respond in his spirit. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated the feast day of St. Moses the Egyptian, also known, or Ethiopian, also known as St. Moses the Black. And he's one of my favorite characters in the church's history. He was a robber and a man of violence who stumbles, fleeing from the law, stumbles into a monastery and is so impressed with their way of life and also seeking not to be arrested and killed, converts, right? Sometimes we don't have the best motives, right? He, he converts and becomes a monk. But not long after that, he's out walking and praying and robbers attack him. But they didn't know what they were getting into. And he defeats all of them, captures them, and takes them back to the monastery and says, I want to kill them, but I don't think I should now. And all of them convert. And so this is the way, this is his evangelistic method. Whenever people attack him, <laughs> right? Whenever people attack him, he defeats them and then converts them. Right? This is community. This is community. When you are attacked, and you will be, take that sword from them. And then with praise in your mouth, return it to them. And wisely, discerningly remind them, we are obligated to each other. We belong, not because we like each other, not because we have a shared history of enjoyment with each other, but because we are claimed by one who will not let us go. Our relationship to one another is not about our shared history. It's about our history with God, who has said, you are mine and you are mine, so learn to live together. And that's what we're about to celebrate at this table. Like the original disciples, some of us are afraid to fall asleep around others of us, right? You mean, you think about that original band of disciples. You have brigands and assassins sleeping with fishermen and tax collectors. You've got people who have no concern for the politics of the day. You have people who've sided with Rome and then people who kill Romans and kill Jews who side with Rome. And Jesus says to all of them, follow me, eat together, sleep together, pray together. That's what's in this room this morning. Some of you are tax collectors and some of you are assassins and some of you are fishermen and you, you're blissfully ignorant of everything that's going on. But at this table, all of us gather together with a double-edged sword in our hand. And what we say is, I won't wound you if you won't wound me. But if we wound one another, let those wounds be the wounds of Christ. If you wrong me, let me accept that as my share in Christ's suffering. And if I wrong you, please accept it as your opportunity to be like Jesus. And let's stay together long enough to let the healing of God come. Amen. I'm going to stop right there. <laughs>